The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Natalie Goldberg, is the author of 15 books, including the classic bestseller, Writing Down the Bones which has changed the way writing is taught in the United States and really changed my own approach to writing as well. An excerpt from her newest book, Three Simple Lines, A Writer's Pilgrimage into the Heart and Homeland of Haiku, appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Natalie Goldberg, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you're here. I have been a fan of yours since Writing Down the Bones, and that was, 1986. Wow. That was a long time ago. Wow, that, that's amazing. And, and your work is, you know, there's a power to it and that, that never gets, you never repeat, you never, it's not redundant, it never gets old. Okay, but I, I, could, I, could, end, I could spend the entire 20 minutes just, you know, telling you how great you are, but then Go right ahead. Go right ahead. <laughs> that wouldn't, yeah, they, I, I have to restrain myself. So let okay. me jump into the book. You asked a question early on in the book, what is the way of haiku? And your answer left me really, I mean, I mean, breathless in a sense. And so I'm going to quote it to you. You wrote, bear attention, no distractions, pure awareness, noticing only what is in the moment close quote. So, I mean, that really struck me. I mean, first, it sounded like a description of of Zen practice. But as I understood you, writing haiku arises out of these four elements, bare attention, no distractions, pure awareness, noticing only what is in the moment. I'm wondering if reading haiku can take you into those four elements as well. Oh, that's a wonderful question. And yes, that's why I do it. That's why I read haiku. Because as Allen Ginsberg says, the true test of a haiku is not five, seven, five syllables, but a short three-line poem. But the real test is that when you hear one, your mind has a little sensation of space. And then he said, which is nothing less than God. Mm. But you have to listen. And even more important, you have to have a good translation 
of haiku. Because sometimes I used to pick up a book of haiku and it was a dead horse. <laughs> I'd read the haiku <laughs> and it didn't mean anything. But you have to slow down to receive it and you have to slow down to listen to it. And when you read that description that I had of the way of haiku, I realized that that's exactly opposite from what's going on now in the development of the mind with the internet. We very much have lost any kind of attention. We skip around. Concentration is out the window. And that's painful. With that in mind, you'd end up with no attention, constant distraction, shallow awareness, noticing only what is flashing on the screen. So, so in a sense, I don't want to overstate it, but in a sense, well, actually, let me back up for a second. Not everyone can sit and meditate. So the question is, if these four elements are, if, if even reading haiku gives rise to these four elements, would you suggest, suggest haiku reading as a spiritual practice? Yes, I would. Anything that slows you down. Now, you say that not everyone can meditate. I don't know why not. You can, we all have a breath and we can sit still. You, have to, you learn. It's sort of like mixing up olive oil and vinegar and waiting for the vinegar to drop and the oil to get clear. We have to practice this some, but maybe I'm being naive that we're too gone now. I can never get you back. I can never get <laughs> my old students back. And that scares me because then we end up living in discursive thinking, yada, 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 yada. I need to go shop. I need to do this. I have to do this. Oh, yeah, I have a thought. And we never sink into ourselves. That scares me. And yet, yes, not everyone is inclined to meditate. And haiku, that's why I studied haiku, because it's the way of haiku. It's another way in the world. It's another yeah. practice. Yeah. So I think that a better way of putting it, I should have said, not everyone is inclined to meditate. Not that not everyone can. You're much more accurate than I was. You mentioned that it's not about the traditional Japanese form of three lines. First one has five syllables, second one has seven, and the third one has five. By the way, because we're, we're both Jewish, I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Shema is, in Hebrew, a perfect haiku. Oh, no, I'm not. So, because <laughs> it's Shema Yisrael, that's five syllables, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, another five. So, I mean, no one thought of that when they wrote it. I, mean, <laughs> I don't think uh -huh. there was a connection there, but, yeah, but it's just a, it, something that really touches the root is across religions. It doesn't yeah. matter. You know, it really doesn't matter. Right, right. If, when you get to the heart of, of any religion, I think you find the same basic wisdom. Yeah. And I, then you go beyond it to have some kind of experience, which I think anyone who has that experience, uh, even though they may articulate it in different ways, is, is actually having the same experience. Yeah. Which I think is the same thing you're talking about when you say bare attention, no distractions, pure awareness, noticing what's in the moment. I think that's the, that's the experience. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Allen Ginsberg earlier and about the idea of not getting hung up on the traditional Japanese form. 
And you write this, which I thought was really interesting. I'm just going to quote you again. Uh, you think you said, I think it's good to be aware of both counting and not counting the syllables you're talking about. If I didn't count a bit, rein in each line, I'd end up galloping into a short story. And if I only cared about syllables, I'd have a block of words with no soul. Capturing the spirit of haiku is what I'm most interested in. And haiku asks for a spirit that's not so human-centered. And it's that last line that haiku asks for a spirit that's not so human-centered that, that I wanted to go into a bit. If, if it isn't human-centered, is it centered somewhere else or is it not about centering at all? I think it's, um, well, certainly an awareness of nature, but not just nature. It, I think what it is is it could be human-centered, but not clinging to yourself. Because when we wow. cling to ourself, we are not aware of what's around us. So it's um, human and non-human. It rolls. You know what I mean? Sort of like there's an expression, a pearl rolling in a silver bowl. That Your mind is greased. So you don't mm. get stuck. You don't get stuck with your own aggravation and you don't get stuck with a chair outside of you. You know, you, you just see moment to moment things spinning, I guess. Yeah. I, I've been reading a lot of, in translation, a lot of Chinese Chan poetry uh -huh. and comparing it to Chinese landscape painting. And I'm always so interested in their landscape painting. I, now, of course, I'm going to forget the artist and the name of the painting, but it's basically... A person crossing a bridge. I think the name of it is Man Crossing Bridge or something. And it's these two giant mountain peaks and this tiny little bridge with a teeny tiny little person crossing. In America or in the West, Man Crossing Bridge would be a man in the foreground, you know, on, on a bridge. But this was the surrounding natural world. And the person was just, a, you know, a dot as a part of that larger, larger reality. And I, I think that's what you're saying when we're saying it's not, not human centered, but it's the center, the human is, is, is part of this much larger reality. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. And that's a beautiful illustration of it. I appreciate that. The, the sub, I don't know if it's really the subtitle, but three simple lines and then a colon and you say a writer's pilgrimage into the heart and homeland of haiku. So a lot of this, is pilgrimage. A lot of it is travelogue. And you go to places that I've been, and then you write about places in these places I've been that I never even knew existed because I didn't check on where I was going when I went there. So I'm going, ah, I should have been there. Oh, why didn't I do that? But you've been to some places I've been. You've also, in the book, you talk to some people that I've, that I know, as, as well as most, you know, most of the people you, you reference, I don't. But you have this conversation with uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, who I do know. Uh -huh. And, you know, she's talking, the two of you are talking about uh, Roshi Harada, uh, who I wish I had met. Um, and she's saying something that he said to her, I guess. And she says, quoting him, as we speak at this very moment, all over Japan, Zen is fading away. <laughs> and I've heard that from other Zen teachers, Japanese Zen teachers. 
Do you get that sense? I mean, you visited all these temples. What do you think he's talking about? I think he's right. I think in the 60s, Zen teachers came to America and to the West because Westerners were dying to learn Zen and were willing to sit and do the hard work. In Japan, after World War II, their their energy was all to build the country up again. They, you know, they were completely destroyed and devastated. They didn't have time to sit and sit in monasteries. And actually, it's not in this book, but in the Great Spring, I wrote an essay about going much earlier to Japan in the 90s and meeting a couple who spoke English. And he was studying one of the really hard philosophers. Oh, Immanuel Kant. And I said, you're kidding. I'm studying Dogen. And he said, oh, Dogen is too hard. (laughs) And and with a little courage, I finally said to him, you know, I'm a Zen student. And I could tell he had no respect for that. Uh. Because it was just a stupid thing to do. And, you know, he said, oh, it's too hard. Monks die young. Oh, and that's interesting. I I mean, I can understand what you're saying about Japan after World War II, you know, vis-a-vis Zen, Zen was co-opted during the Second World War. I mean, Zen teachings and teachers were used to train kamikaze pilots. Yes, uh, and the philosophy of Zen was used to back their, um, you know, their war. But not everyone, not everyone at all. No, no, not not at all. But it made me think, just when you said it, it's like what happened to Judaism after World War II. The the goal wasn't uh, spiritual at all. It was rebuilding the structure that had been devastated by the Nazis. And it wasn't until, well, I'm going to say the 60s, but maybe I'm, I'm off on the timeline, when people, American Jews especially, said, well, where's the spirituality? And they found it in Hinduism, they found it in Buddhism, but not in Judaism because the focus was still on simply maintaining or or rebuilding the form that had been destroyed. Yes, you know, that's true for me. I felt that Judaism was so complicated and I had to go through so much about the Holocaust that I could never get to the essence of Judaism. And um, I've sat, I've gone to Auschwitz and sat on the tracks for a week at a time with other Zen students. And it was very profound for me. And actually Katagiri at one time, um, Katagiri Roshi, who was my main Zen teacher, told me that I need, I went in one day and I said, you know, the more I sit, the more Jewish I feel. And he said, well, that makes sense. The more you sit, the more you become who you are. And I'm Jewish. And he said, you should leave here and go study with rabbis. And he said, when you get to the heart of Judaism, you'll find Zen. Uh, I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the last part. I don't know if you could find a rabbi that would help, but well, I think I that's true. Went, I even went to Israel for three months and I would go to these religious rabbis and I'd say, well, give me a practice. And all they would say was, get married and have children. <laughs> well, that's a practice. That. And they said, <laughs> that's practice. Right, right. It's so bizarre to me. You know, I, I lived in, in Israel um, different at different times in my life. And, and 
at one time when I was really studying, you know, the, the spiritual stuff, I, I did it with a Zen master in Jerusalem. <laughs> there, oh, just cool. wasn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't a rabbi I could talk to. Uh-huh. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So in your conversations with Harada Roshi, uh, you're talking about Kadagiri, your, your primary Zen teacher, and he says something that I, I didn't, it didn't bring me to tears, but it really moved me. So he said to you, Katagiri was very lucky to meet you. Katagiri was very lucky to meet you. Katagiri was very lucky to meet you. He said it three times. And I read that and it just struck me. I don't know, some, for some reason. And it was at the bottom of, pay, of the page. And I flipped the page expecting to learn how you responded, not what you said, I don't know what you could say to that, but just inside what your response was, but you moved on to something else. So I was, I'm going to ask you if you remember the moment when he says Katagiri was very lucky to meet you, how did you feel? Yes. We should say that um, Harada Roshi read writing down the bones in Japanese and came looking for me. And I met him and he was Katagiri's best friend. And when he said that to me, as we were leaving each other, I was stunned because I have loved Katagiri and felt that he gave me so much, but I never saw it from the other angle. I understand now that I was dedicated. Katagiri died in 1990. I have still continued my dedication. And in many books, I have brought him alive. And that's a wonderful thing for a teacher to have, a student that stays true to them, stays loyal, and keeps absorbing the work. Because mm. I'm a teacher, and it's a rare thing that my students will go all the way with me. I do have some wonderful students like that, but I understand it's rare. And it, it did blow me away to see the other angle. And I really appreciated it. And in a way, I wrote this book a lot not only to share haiku, but to share that experience with Harada Roshi. Wow. Well, it really comes across very powerfully. I, 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 you've written, like you said, you bring uh, Katagiri Roshi into, into your work, all of these books, and you've dedicated uh, The Great Failure, the book that you call The Great Failure, uh, to, to his failings. But I'm not interested in, in, in that about him. What I'm interested in is you wrote to Harada Roshi about your writing The Great Failure. And you said to him, and I apologize for keep quoting you, but you, say, you said to him, um, in writing the book, I grew up and became my own authority. In writing the book, I grew up and became my own authority. So I'm curious as to how you understand becoming your own authority. And then how does being your own authority impact your writing in general and, and writing haiku in particular. 
Oh, okay. Uh, well, I wrote a book, Long Quiet Highway, that came out in 92, which was about my relationship with him, a glowing memoir. And then in 2004, I came out with The Great Failure. And in it, what happened was he became human. He became, I took him off the pedestal. But I didn't not love him. I was willing to go to the mat for him and examine the whole aspect of a human being. Because we didn't, he was a Japanese man who gave us teachings that were so astounding that, and we didn't understand. So he became very human. And then I didn't understand that everyone was going to turn on me. I mean, and in the Zen way, it was silence. If they called me and at least yelled at me, it would have been human. But instead, everyone silenced me and pushed me out. It was very painful. And I was either going to die or become my own authority, meaning stand up in my own truth. And what was wonderful was that Harada recognized that. So how does that affect my writing? It affects my writing because you become more and more as time goes on as a writer, who you are and more honest, or you go under. <laughs> you either stay with that voice and with the truth of what you know, or you go under. So it's very important. Mm, yeah. And I actually write a lot of haiku. I was interested in studying another path besides Zen. And I went back to the original great teachers. And I didn't realize that at the end, I thought when I finished the book and two months later, I um, thought of an epilogue that had nothing to do with the book. And I was, you know, poo-pooing it. And then finally I said, just write it. And um, I realized that the whole book, without realizing it, was an homage to Allen Ginsberg who was my teacher, my only writing teacher. I studied with him for six weeks. And then we became friends and I taught with him after writing down the bones came out. But he's the person that put together writing and the study of mind. But I didn't, often you write and you don't know till much later what you're doing. So I didn't realize for a long time that it was my homage to him. Wow. I, I I mean, he does play a, a, a significant role in the book, but I, I didn't read it that way. I, I tell you what, what I was taken with, and, and I know we're, we're really coming up to the end of this. I guess I have two more questions, or actually one question, and I'm just going to have a closing reading if you won't, don't mind. You do this really wonderful thing at the end of the book. You talk about uh, a student of yours, Beth Howard, and her six guidelines for haiku writing. And you, I, I thought, wow, what I think it speaks to your being your own authority that you could allow her to have her own voice in this. I, I felt it spoke to your integrity as well as your modesty. I, I was very impressed with it. And the sixth of the, her six points is remove everything not needed. And I, that was another thing I had to hear. Now, when I when I write, I just write wildly and I don't pay any attention. And then I rewrite a thousand times, removing everything I think that's not needed. Uh, and then when the book comes out, I reread it and go, oh, no, I could have gotten rid of that, too. But I love the idea of removing everything not needed. So certainly that applies to writing, applies to haiku. I'm wondering, it seems to me it also applies to just living. 
So I was just curious how you would respond to this. If you were to remove everything not needed in your life at the moment, what would you be left with? Well, that's, wow, that is a wild question. I am trying to empty out a lot of things in my house, but what would I be left with? Oh, I'd be left with um, hiking, cooking, cooking vegetables, cooking things that are very essential, wholesome, and um, sitting, sitting meditation, and doing writing practice. Oh, and painting. Yeah, we should mention that you have a wonderful book of, of your paintings. All right. Well, I want to bring this conversation to a close. Uh, with you reading a section at near the end of the book in the chapter, Wanting to See. So it's, uh, we set this up. I don't have to pretend that this is new. I told you what I, what I, what I wanted to end. So if you could just read that little section. Uh, and that's, how, Would that's I, how we'll I, bring this to a okay, close. I'd love to, but before, I'd like to come back to Beth Howard for one minute. Oh, yes. Go ahead. I, we also list some of her haiku so that her instructions are kosher. You see, she's been practicing. Uh, one that I really love that I want to read. To learn, to learn how to live, watch the full moon rise. Okay, so I'll read now from my book. I'm in a haiku group that meets once a month in Santa Fe. Finally, it's my turn. I read, climbing higher than I've ever gone wanting to see the aspens yellowing earlier than normal. I keep going. Three memorials for friends in September and others sick. A small spring comes down from a higher mountain. Big boulders in shade. A cool spot to meditate. Vast mountain creek in dark, cold stones. My original face. A long pause, I cock my head. I think it works, says someone. Someone else says, maybe take out three memorials. Someone else says, no, that fits. I say, and the haiku? Sharon nods, it's good. I burst inside like a firecracker. It's been three decades since I felt like this after finishing a poem. I want to do somersaults, flips across the room. Our guest today, Natalie Goldberg, is the author of many books, most recently, Three Simple Lines, a writer's pilgrimage into the heart and homeland of haiku. An excerpt from the book appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, and you can learn more about her work on her website, nataliegoldberg.com. Natalie, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. 
Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.